Aloha, and welcome to the Inside Out Show, an hour of fun, friendly, heartfelt, provocative conversation. Exploring solutions to relationship challenges, to snuggle up and break free from fears, doubts, and insecurities, for you to live with more joy, passion, love, and success. I'm your host, Carrie Valentine. Now, on to an inspiring, juicy show. You're listening to KKCR Hanale, KAQA Kilauea, Kauai Community Radio. We are heard on the FM dial at 90.9 in Hanalei, 91.9 island-wide, 92.7 in Moloa'a, and 88.9 in Honolulu. We are streaming live 24-7 at kkcr.org. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Also wanted to mahalo our underwriters. This is the Inside Out Show. I'm your host, Carrie Valentine, and I am very, very excited and honored to have a very special guest today on our show, and I'm just going to jump right in. Shankar Vedantam, host of the popular podcast Hidden Brain, has been reporting on human behavior for decades. He explores in his newest book, Useful Delusions, that buying into false beliefs can actually be a good thing sometimes. He joins the Inside Out Show to explain why self-delusion can be a useful tool to help us through life's hardships. It's an honor to have you on the show. My family and I are fans of your Hidden Brain podcast. Welcome and aloha, Shankar. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. It's It's been many years since I visited uh, Hawaii, but uh, talking to you is going to give me a little window into what life is like right now on on your beautiful island. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> with that, I was curious of, was there an inspiration uh, to start writing uh, the book, Useful Delusions, for you? You know, the, the inspiration for this particular book came from a story that I reported first for This American Life and then later on for Hidden Brain, uh, looking at a con that unfolded in the 70s and 80s. And the con involved uh, a really remarkable story, but what was most remarkable about it was that it involved the self-deception of many people who were essentially the victims of the con. And we can talk more about that story if you like, but that story in many ways was the genesis for my interest in the subject of self-deception and the ways in which self-deception can do both great harm as well as potentially great good in our lives. Yeah, that's wonderful. Why don't you uh, expound upon that story a little bit for our audience? Sure. So in the 70s and 80s, a balding middle-aged man in Illinois, whose name was Donald Lowry, uh, he was a writer. He invented various characters, young women, and he called these uh, women angels. Uh, And then he hit upon an interesting business idea. He basically started writing letters on behalf of these angels, so using the personas that he had created. And he wrote to thousands of men across the United States. Um, And eventually these letters became love letters. And many of the men receiving the love letters wrote back. Some of them believed over a matter of uh, months and years that they were corresponding with women who were their soulmates. Uh, Many of them fell in love, uh, pledged uh, their money to uh, these angels. 
Uh, Don Lowry called his organization the Church of Love, and in its heyday, the Church of Love had as many as 30,000 members. So it's an unusual um, story about a con, but what makes this extraordinary and what gives the story, you know, the, it's, it's real sort of psychological depth, is that when Lowry's scheme was finally unmasked and he was put on trial for mail fraud, several members of his Church of Love showed up at a courtroom in Peoria to defend him. And I found this to be remarkable. Why is it when, a, when the con has been revealed, why would the marks show up to defend the con man? And several people on the witness stand said that the, the Church of Love had kept them from alcoholism and depression. A couple of people said the, the love letters from the angels had saved them from suicide. And as a very logical and rational person, I assume that you know, the, the people who fell for the con were just simpletons. They were fools. Uh, but after reading the reports of what happened during that trial and interviewing several of the members, I came to have a more nuanced view of what people took away from the from the love letter scheme, and then to think more uh, in more complex ways about the larger subject of self-deception itself. With that, in your research, how have you found that um, decipher uh, between delusions and reality with the brain? How, what have you found that to, uh, to work in between those two elements? Yeah. So I, as I said, you know, I, I, I'm a deeply logical and rational person. I've been a science journalist for many years. I believe deeply in science and the value of science. But after reading the story about the church of love, I started to find um you know, pieces of evidence that contradicted the way that I was seeing the world and contradicted it in this way. I think of myself as being very deliberate. I think of everything that I'm doing as very rational and very logical, but it turns out there are a variety of scientific studies that suggest that the line between delusion and reality is much thinner than many of us imagine. Um, now, most of us find it very difficult to see delusional beliefs when we ourselves have the delusional beliefs, but it turns out delusional beliefs are actually quite ubiquitous. They're shared uh, widely among many, many people. Uh, one of the hallmarks, of course, is that when you're the one who has the delusion, it's very hard for you to realize that you're having a delusion. You're, you see it as, as reality. But, but let me give you sort of the very simplest of examples, you know, just at the level of the way at which the brain works. Uh, at any given moment, your eye is taking in, you know, a huge amount of information, but only a very, very small fraction of that information is actually transmitted to the brain. And the brain, in fact, processes an even smaller fraction of that information. So if the, you know, of the billion bits of information that come flooding into your eye at any given moment, the brain is processing about 40 bits of that information. And the reason it does all this filtering is because over the course of millions of years of evolution, your brain has learned it's actually better off. It's more functional, focusing on this narrower subset of the information coming in through your eyes. So what your brain is perceiving might not exactly be reality, but it turns out that perceiving a delusional version of reality is actually highly functional. It allows us to get through our days efficiently, allows us to focus on the things that evolution cares about, you know, things like survival or raising our children properly to adulthood. You speak about people who are dealing with, let's say, depression and things of this nature, yeah. sometimes have a better sense of reality than others. What, what have you found to make that you know, real for them? 
Yeah. So for many, many years, people thought that those who had mental illnesses, and we're not talking about serious psychiatric disorders like you know, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but, but milder psychiatric disorders like depression or anxiety, people typically thought that people who had these milder forms of psychiatric illness were in some ways delusionally seeing the world through pessimistic through a pessimistic lens that, you know, the assumption was everyone who's healthy sees the world realistically. People who are mentally ill are seeing the world with a delusional pessimism. But over the course of the previous 20 or 30 years, studies have emerged that suggest that in some ways it's the opposite. It's people who are depressed and anxious who are very often seeing the world realistically and people who are quote unquote mentally healthy, who in fact have a delusional optimism as they see the world. And of course, this turns the idea of what mental health is on its head because it suggests that at some level, being mentally healthy involves the ability to come up with various rationalizations, various coping mechanisms, putting traumas out of our heads, recovering from, uh, from terrible incidents, from grief, from suffering. All of this is part of the picture of what it means to be mentally healthy. And again, it turns out there is a a dichotomy between you know, focusing on realism versus focusing on what is functional. And again, our brains typically prioritize what is functional over what is real. Yeah, this is very curious exploration uh, to discuss because it, it, it's like, what in a sense, what delusion do you want to choose uh -huh. <laughs> in a way? Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, because you know what you're sharing, I, I understand, and it is a wonderful insight. Uh, and yet, that's also an element. Just like again, it's an element of let's say you are depressed, um, and I can speak to that because I've been there in my life. Uh -huh. It's it's understanding that thinking into another level like okay yes here's here is where i'm at at this moment and then however what do i choose do i continue to choose to be in this space and uh -huh. and then the, it, it kind of brings out the question what benefit do i get by being here and funny enough i have found some people uh, in a weird way enjoy the misery um in, in that sense uh and so just yeah any more uh, elements to that you can add to this kind of uh, interesting uh, dichotomy of delusions between the the negative and the positive in that sense yeah one way i have come to think about this and let me let me try this analogy out on you and see what you think of it carrie um you know many of us think of our brains as being like a computer you know the brain is basically like a camera that pick, picks up visual information or it's a microphone that picks up auditory information that it's basically functioning like a camera but in reality this is not how our brains operate it's it's almost better to think of your brain as almost playing a mediator role between your internal world and your external world. So imagine for a second, Carrie, that you're not the individual, a single person, Carrie, but imagine you are the country of Carrie or the nation of Carrie, and you appoint ambassadors to go out to different nations. What you expect from this ambassador who goes out to this different nation is to basically come back and report to you all the interesting and important things happening in that nation. But this ambassador who goes there, very skilled, experienced ambassador, realizes that if she comes back and tells you everything that she has heard about this new country, you're going to get quickly overwhelmed. It's not going to be useful to you. So she starts to filter what it is that she's telling you so that you'll be able to use a more limited amount of information in a more actionable way. That is exactly what our brains are doing all the time. They're basically negotiating between our internal needs and wants and fears and the reality of the external world. 
a brain that takes in nothing of external reality, that's not a good place to be because, you know, if you don't, if you focus entirely on your internal worlds, the lion that's outside is going to eat you very, very shortly. You're not likely to survive or pass on your genes. But it turns out that being entirely focused on the outside world is also not functional because we have a lot of internal needs and drives that are also extremely potent. So part of what the brain is doing in some ways is negotiating between the internal and external world. And that's where this world of deception and self-deception comes about, that very often the stories that we're telling ourselves are stories that are designed to recognize reconcile our internal needs and hopes and fears and anxieties with the reality of the external world. Oh, thank you for that. We're going to come back and explore this idea more. Uh, I, I'd love for you to share if there was an experience that inspired you to start to study the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I was someone who didn't really believe in the unconscious mind. I, I thought that the unconscious mind was sort of something that Sigmund Freud came up with, and but that modern, you know, science had basically, uh, you know, rejected many ideas in Freudian psychology. But then again, over the last 20 or 30 years, a number of studies started to emerge that suggested that in our daily lives, we were influenced in all kinds of ways by things happening outside of our conscious awareness. Uh, in many ways right now, the understanding of the brain is, you know, you can draw an analogy between what happens when you sit down to watch a play uh, or a musical in a theater. You understand that there's action happening on the stage in front of you, but you also understand that in order for that action to happen on the stage in front of you, a lot of things need to be happening backstage. Someone needs to have written the script. There needs to be a director. Somebody's thinking about lighting. Something. Someone's thinking about costumes and sets. All this stuff happens in the background out of sight, but without all the stuff that's happening backstage, you really don't have the action on the stage in front of you. Our brains function very much in the same fashion. There's parts of our brains that are conscious to us. They're, they're like the action that we see on the stage in front of us. But in order to make the things that we see on the stage possible, there's a whole host of things that have to happen backstage in the unconscious mind. So 10 years ago, when I wrote the book, The Hidden Brain, I coined this term, hidden brain, to describe the world of the, of the mind that basically lies outside of conscious awareness that is basically influencing us all the time. My new book, Useful Delusions, in some ways, is building on that idea and talking about ways in which the hidden brain sometimes produces self-deceptions, sometimes that are good for us, sometimes that are bad for us. Thank you for that. Yes. And I was curious, in this process for you, uh, who have been your heroes in, in I guess, in the human development, uh, human behavior area? Yeah. So one of my first heroes, I would say, is, uh, you know, I, I was up at, um, I was up in uh, Boston some years ago, maybe 15 years ago or so, and I happened to stop by Harvard University, and I met with a psychologist there named Mazarin Banaji. And Mazarin studies uh, our unconscious minds and how they work when it comes to prejudice, how our views, uh, our unconscious minds affect the way we think about people from other races or, um, you know, people with a different of a different gender or different sexual orientation. And, and as she described her work, she actually had an, uh, these studies that basically have now become quite famous uh, that sort of measure implicit biases. And I fully expected when I took these tests that I was going to show that I had no unconscious biases whatsoever. And I was shocked to discover that, in fact, I did have unconscious biases on, any num on, on a number of different scales. 
And so in some ways, um, I, I would count Mazarin Banaji as sort of really being one of my intellectual heroes and sort of opening my mind, if you will, to the possibility that beyond my conscious mind, there were a number of things in my unconscious mind. Uh, but beyond that, you know, there have been a number of different researchers whose work we have featured on, on Hidden Brain. Uh, we spoke with uh, Danny Kahneman, the, the Nobel Prize winning psychologist some years ago, remarkable man who has wonderful insights about why it is uh, we make the decisions we do, especially when it comes to you know, economic transactions and how we function as economic actors. A number of other researchers are you know, sociologists, economists. One of the great privileges that I enjoy as the host of uh, the Hidden Brain podcast and radio show is that I get to talk to these people almost on a weekly basis. So I feel like almost every Every week, I have uh, I come by two or three ideas that almost literally blow my mind, uh, which is a source of huge uh, delight and satisfaction for me. That's wonderful. It's uh, great to be doing work that you you love and keep it you know expanding yourself. If you just tuned in, you're listening to KKCR Kauai Community Radio. This is the Inside Out Show. I'm your host, Carrie Valentine. And if you have questions or comments you'd like to make, feel free to reach out to me at insideouthost at gmail.com. That's insideouthost at gmail.com. I am delighted and honored to be having a wonderful, provocative conversation with Shankar Vedantam. Shankar is the host of the Hidden Brain Show, heard on NPR, which explores the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior and questions that lie at the heart of our complex and changing world. By hosting The Hidden Brain, Shankar is marked by a commitment to scientific and journalistic rigor and a deep empathy for the guests that come on the show and the audience that listen to the Hidden Brain podcast, which was launched in 2015 and is one of the nation's fastest growing shows with two to three million downloads per week. The Hidden Brain podcast is heard on more than 350 public radio stations on NPR. I'd love to take a moment to step back uh, and and explore. You were an electronics engineer uh, studying that in India and then received a master's in journalism in Stanford University. I was curious of how the arc of of experience came about to you know create the Hidden Brain podcast for and or the Hidden Brain show at that point on NPR. Yeah, so I've always been someone who has an interest in human behavior, uh, and, I, and I don't think I quite labeled it as such, but I was always interested in human behavior. I remember when I was very young, and I would go to get-togethers, you know, parties with friends, there would be a part of me that would be in the party enjoying myself, but there would also be a part of me that would be observing the others at the party and observing how people interacted with one another, how they responded to one another. I was always curious when someone is angry, how do they respond? Why does one person respond one way? Why does another person respond another way? So in some ways I've long been a student, I think of human behavior. I've been fascinated by human nature and why people do what they do. Um, my, my background in, um, in engineering, I think, was in some ways a detour, but it was a useful detour because it taught me many useful things about science and, and mathematics that have turned out to be quite useful to me in my career as a science journalist. 
so when I went into journalism, I first became a, a general interest science journalist. I covered any number of different things, all the way from, you know, forensic tests in in the criminal justice system to to biology. Eventually, I started gravitating to writing about the the brain and the mind. I covered uh, mental illness and uh, neuroscience for many years at the Washington Post, uh, and I, and I was drawn to the mind. I think partly because when it when it comes to science, the biggest mysteries that are out there really have to do with the mind. I mean, we we know so much more about how the heart works or how the kidney works or even how the immune system works compared to how the brain works. It really is in some ways one of the, the biggest mysteries that are that is out there. And I think this combination of my interest in human behavior, the mysteries that wait to be explored in in the in the brain and the ability of the social scientists in other, to study things that are of interest to people, you know, why do people do what they do in their daily lives? The combination of these three things I think are what produced the the book and then later on the podcast hidden brain beautiful thank you for that in a recent interview on hidden brain with psychologist tara lombroso you both were exploring the stories we tell ourselves uh-huh. and and tara was sharing that we have a certain we may have a certain belief about something but it's also important to explore the opposite side of that as well and look for ideas that are valuable to support the other side of the argument that being said in your research have you explored the world of doubts and specifically how doubt is often looked as a quote negative mm-hmm. but if but if we give this argument that we're talking about to look at the other side mm-hmm. then what if what if we consider that doubts are actually positive mm-hmm. and just cloaked in the apparent negative and that they're actually wanting the best for us and they show up as negatively to challenge us to kind of rise up to actualize our greatest goals and dreams. Yeah, can you, I, can you yeah. share about anything on that? Yeah, you know, I, I love I love the question, Carrie. In some ways, I wish we could take what you just said and, and put it on every cable television channel show in the United States because you know, when I watch cable TV at, <laughs> on the evenings, you know, this is the thing I'm often struck by, which is that no one expresses doubt. No one expresses doubt of any kind. Everyone is so sure of themselves. Um, the the interview that I did with Tanya Lombroso, and it's sort of interesting that you brought that up. Um, so Tanya Lombroso is someone who studies how the brain in some ways is a storytelling machine. Uh, we understand our place in the world. We understand the things that happen to us in the world. We understand these through the lens of stories. And so our minds are very adept at coming up with stories that explain the things that we see. Now, usually this is a very useful ability. It allows us to navigate our worlds very successfully. But when it comes to things like politics, especially, it has a real downside, which is when we see things in the political sphere or we see things in very controversial areas, we very quickly leap to conclusions and we are very very sure that our conclusions must be the right conclusions. I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. Uh, Tanya Lombroso's point in some ways of arguing both sides of an issue is really about this idea that in experiments, when you ask, when you randomly assign people to debate one side of an issue or another, what turns out is that after five minutes of essentially making an argument for for one side, and you've been randomly assigned to make that argument, people start to believe 
the side that they have been assigned to argue in favor of. So in other words, if I'm arguing for a proposition, I come to genuinely believe the proposition is correct. If I argue against the proposition, I genuinely believe that the proposition is wrong. And Tanya Labrosa was exploring the possibility that in some ways this could be a technique in some ways to engender doubt, to actually institutionalize doubt, which is the same thing that you were just saying a second ago so eloquently, Carrie. The idea being that if you really want to get at the truth of something, it might be useful to articulate an argument for whatever point you have, your whatever position you have, and then make the effort to try and articulate an argument for the opposite side. And by so doing, in some ways, you're destabilizing the tendency that many people have for very strong conviction, for believing that the way they see the world is not only correct, but that there's absolutely no way that they could be wrong. So I think that you're onto a profound insight. As, as I said, I only wish we could play that insight on every cable television channel across America. Thank you for that. Because uh, it is very a fascinating idea and fascinating has it's um, been applied. I've seen it being applied in my own life and others. And um, it is amazing to for 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 folks to conceptualize this idea it can be a real game changer mm -hmm. for folks to realize, hey, the doubt that I have, I've never really explored. What if it meant something different? Mm -hmm. And so thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm curious, you know, from your research uh, from the neuro the neural pathway aspect when doubts get transformed so when they're no longer affecting one the same way they used to be have has science yet seen um, that like looking at the brain and seeing how the neural pathways actually are different they're following different pathways as in a sense, one betters themselves or loosely saying that or evolves or basically shifts from a negative pattern to a more positive pattern, or should I say delusion, as we're talking today. <laughs> yeah, so, so the, the thing is that when we are born and we have to learn things, obviously we don't know how to do many basic things. We don't know how to walk, we don't know how to talk, we don't know how to move our limbs. All of these things have to be learned and we learn these very quickly in infancy. And, and part of the, the, the way we learn this is we run a lot of experiments. You know, we try and move our arms this way and that way, and we babble and we come up with words and we move our lips and we move our tongues. We're trying lots and lots of different things. And then as we try some of these things, some of them actually work. You know, as we move our legs and arms in a certain way, we're able to propel ourselves forward. And what the brain very quickly does is it basically forms models of the world that basically say, okay, this has worked. I know how to do this right now. So you and I don't have to think anymore about how to walk when we are walking upright because we've already mastered that skill when we were one or two years old. Um, so in, in some ways, this has an upside, right? So if you have to think every day about how to walk, if you have to spend a lot of your mental brain power focusing on walking, you wouldn't have your mental brain power available to have this conversation with me. So it's actually helpful for some things in your brain in some ways to become models, to become solidified so that you don't have to think about them anymore. The problem arises when we do the same thing with many of our beliefs and our views, because at that point, you know, we become calcified. Our political orientations become certain. Our views on controversial issues become really certain. We, we start to become inflexible. So the same thing 
models on the one hand can be very powerful in that they can save us time and effort that we don't have to relearn something each time we're trying the activity. But models also have the risk that sometimes they can end up prompting us to be calcified. So in some ways, human behavior is always this delicate juggling act between these two forces. On the one hand, you want to have certainty. On the other hand, doubt is actually what leads you forward. I, I'm not sure in terms of the question that you asked whether there's neurological evidence about the difference between what the brain looks like when it's experiencing doubt versus it's experiencing certainty. I don't think we're at the level of granularity to really understand the neural pathways that are making that, um, that, are making that happen. I think right now we're much more at a psychological understanding. We can see evidence in psychological studies of how people behave in certain ways. Thank you. Speaking of psychologically, uh, I'm curious to ask you if you're familiar with the Netflix series called Sense8. It was uh, created by the makers that did The Matrix. Had you ever seen uh, this show at all? I have seen The Matrix, but I'm not familiar with Sense8. Ah, okay. Uh, I'll just share with you and for the audience, it's a very interesting take on the idea of human potential where people from around the world are, are born with this connected, uh, connected intuitiveness, emotionally, mentally, and sensually, so that there is this, they're exploring this group of eight people around the world born at the same moment in time, and they share this common essence. So as one is going through an emotion, the other around the world is actually feeling it, and they serve to help each other through challenges. It's, um, I think if you you know, check it out. You would enjoy it. It's a very interesting exploration of, of what's our potential. I look forward to checking it out. <laughs> yes. I'd like to talk a little bit about elite athletes uh, for a moment. And many of them use visualizations. Or we could say, you know, quoting from your new book, Useful Delusions, <clears throat> we can say they have a using a positive delusion uh -huh. and they repeat these visualizations or goals in in essence until they're created so i'm just curious in your research um how are these delusions these quote-unquote positive delusions might different you know uh, how are they different from negative delusions like mm -hmm. why why does it work you know in that sense yeah, so many athletes, especially runners, uh, will visualize things as they're running or working towards a goal. And it turns out this visualization is very helpful in achieving your goal. So for example, if you're running a marathon, rather than thinking about the 26-mile race as a 26-mile race, it's better to think of it as a one-mile race that you're running 26 times over. Um, and so the idea is that you basically focus your eyes and your visual attention on a sort of target. And you're telling yourself, all I'm really doing is I'm going to run to that target. And the target is within sight. You try and focus your attention on the visual target. And it turns out you get to that target more easily than if you didn't have a target. And as soon as you reach that target, you now select the next target that's a little bit further ahead and you repeat the process over and over again. Now, it turns out that this, that this works partly because it's easier for us to focus on things that we can comprehend, that's easier that we can bite things off. You know, when, when people suffer from um, 
alcohol and drug addictions, for example, many people practice the idea when they're trying to achieve sobriety of, of practicing, of, of following the practice of one day at a time. Uh, many religi religious groups uh, preach the idea of one day at a time. And one day at a time in many ways is the same analogy to what the runners are doing. You're not telling yourself, I'm trying to quit alcohol for the next 15 years. You're saying, no, I'm trying to quit alcohol until tomorrow. And if you can get to tomorrow, then you say, I'm going to try and quit alcohol until tomorrow. And so each day, by taking things one day at a time, you're able in some ways to break down very difficult, challenging tasks into much more manageable tasks that you can deal with. So this is in some ways hacking your own brain. You're hacking your own brain to come up with a way to allow your brain to accomplish very difficult things by making them into simpler blocks. Uh, you can, I suppose you could call this in some ways a delusion because of course the person who's trying to stay off alcohol or drugs doesn't want to just stay off alcohol and drugs for one day. They want to stay off alcohol and drugs permanently but it helps to break it up into smaller segments. So the self-deception that all you're focused on is just the next 24 hours helps you accomplish the long-term goal. The, the question you're asking, which is when are self-deceptions good and when are self-deceptions bad, turns out to be really complicated and very difficult to articulate because it turns out many self-deceptions that can be good for us can also be self-deceptions that can be bad for us. Uh, this is why the subtitle of my book is The Power and Paradox of the self-deceiving brain. So the idea of the paradox is that self-deception can be a force for both profound good and profound evil. I'm not sure there's an easy dividing line that says, in these cases, self-deception is always good. In these cases, self-deception is always bad. A lot of it depends on the context. Thank you so much, Shankar. I'm so much enjoying our time together. I can talk to you for hours. Uh, but my, la my last question uh, for today would be, what aspect of your latest book, Useful Delusions, would you like to share about that we haven't explored yet? I think the the one thing that I will uh, sh share with you is sort of uh, you know and I, some ideas that I have uh, about parenting um, because in some ways when we think about useful delusions I often feel this uh, this is sort of the easiest example to grasp you know when my own when my own daughter was born um, like many parents I, I don't know if you're a parent yourself Carrie but you know when my when my daughter was born I felt like she was the most special child in the entire universe. Uh, that she was just this miracle beyond all miracles. And, and I believe many parents, if not most parents, actually feel this way, that their children are unique and special and they have this extraordinary connection with them. Now, of course, when you think about it logically and rationally, it can't possibly be the case that millions of parents are simultaneously correct that each of their children is the most special child of the universe. Logically, that's not possible. But the reason this is a very useful delusion to have is that it turns out that parenting is very difficult. It's very challenging. It's very time consuming. You know, even people who don't have children Certainly they have parents and they might remember back to the time they gave their parents a hard time and, and sort of remember how much it took for their parents to raise them successfully. And so this is an example of what I would call a useful delusion. The love that parents have for their children allows parents to withstand all of the challenges and hardships that parenting can bring. And this is why over the course of millions of years of evolution, our brains have learned to automatically and irrationally love the children whom we have because evolution has realized over millions of years that if people 
go to great lengths to protect their offspring, you essentially are, in, in effect, protecting the survival of the species. Uh, now, again, like with all the other examples in my book, you can, you can think of examples where parental love can sometimes produce bad things. You know, there are stories about love for parents, uh, the love the parents have for their children being so blind that their children end up causing great harm. So that certainly is a possibility. Self-deception can sometimes be a force for good, but sometimes a force for bad. But I love the parenting example because I think in some ways it's a universal example, things we've all experienced, the irrational love that parents have for their children is actually a profoundly useful self-deception. That's a wonderful insight. And I'm very grateful for you sharing that. Uh, Shankar, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I wish you continued success with your book, uh, Useful Delusions, and other work that you're doing, and uh, it would be great to, at some point, have a follow-up conversation. I really look forward to that, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me on. My joy. Mahalo and a hui ho.